writer, director, and mediocre singer. Hi, I'm Gabby Dunn. I'm a writer, bicon, bisexual icon, wink, and burnt broccoli fan. Ooh, I hate broccoli. Well, we just cooked burnt broccoli, which is like a thing that a, a old roommate of mine taught me that makes broccoli kind of sweet. So that's a, that's a heads up from me to the audience, is that if you burn broccoli, it's actually better. Hmm. I've been having some real food aversions lately. Why? Well, I just always have food aversion with vegetables and all sorts of stuff. Right, right, right. I even like, I love artichoke so much, but then we had artichoke a few weeks ago and there was something on the inside leaves that looked like little black dots that I (gasps) can only assume was bugs. might not have been bugs, but it freaked (laughs) me out and I haven't been able to eat it since. I don't think that was bugs. Could have been bugs though. I don't, oh wow. I don't think it was bugs. Yeah. I was, you know, how is your OCD, by the way? I don't know. I, I'm so curious if my food aversion is my OCD or if I'm just so picky or it's just a different issue. But it's like really interfering with my life. I like can't eat anything anymore. Did you see that tweet that was like, stop being a picky eater. You're an adult. Grow up. And then everyone lost their goddamn minds about it. And then people were arguing like some people were like, but this is ableist, blah, blah, blah. And then other people like were like, why are you concerned with what other people eat? Like it just became this whole thing. But then other people agreed with the tweeter. Um, do you feel personally attacked by this tweet? I feel like it sucks. Like, I think that I hate that I'm a picky eater. Like, we were going to make asparagus as part of dinner the other night. And like, for the hours leading up to dinner, I was like, very worried about having to eat the asparagus. Wow. So that does seem maybe OCD related. (laughs) Like, I've never thought about asparagus for an hour. And like my stomach had kind of been queasy and bad. And so I was like, oh, I really like I know I should eat this asparagus, but I really don't think I'm going to be able to eat this asparagus. And then Jake will be disappointed in me and I'll be disappointed in myself. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's just a little peek audience into Allison's brain. Can I tell you? Okay, so the guy that I dated in New York who was terrible, um, Uh which I guess that could be a description of many people. But um, the main one, uh, one time we went to a a restaurant with like maybe eight people and it was like a vegan restaurant and we went out to dinner and he looked at the menu and then went, I don't want any of this. And then he left and he went to Chipotle and ate a Chipotle and then came back. And part of me admires the audacity of that. Yeah, I think you've told me this before. I 100% sometimes go to restaurants and I'm like, fuck, there's nothing here that I want. And then I get so depressed. (laughs) But like, is that like advocating for yourself or is that like audacity? Like at the time I was like, what the? Like, I, I kind of respect it, but I also was like, wow, dude. Well, I totally get like not being able to find anything that appeals to you. And I also am like so like temperamental in what I'll yeah. eat. So like sometimes I'll eat certain things and sometimes I just like won't be able to, but it just has been causing me like so much anxiety lately. Would you leave and go to Chipotle? I would probably maybe like order fries or like something yeah. so basic and then eat later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I okay. can stay for the social stuff because right. You know, I'm just a social butterfly. <laughs> uh, just Between Us is a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games and brutal honesty. Like leaving and going to Chipotle. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the fact that asparagus is really keeping me up at night. <laughs> we have got an awesome episode. I'm actually like so excited about this episode. We're going to be talking to Theo Henderson, who's the host of the podcast, We the Unhoused, which is all about the unhoused population in Los Angeles. He's unhoused. He shares his own experiences and also interviews all different people involved in that community. Um, I feel like this is a topic that is like very rarely addressed. Um, and I'm super yeah. excited. The show is so good. So I'm excited to talk to him. And then later we're going to discuss our writing process. How do we pick what we want to write? And then how do we actually do it? We don't. I, <laughs> I was going to say, well, we'll have some advice there. <laughs> but first, hit it. International question. International question. International question. Rosa. London. I like when they put their age, too. I know, but I don't know how to fit it into the song. No, that's okay. You don't have to. Rosa, London, 23. So Rosa asks, how do you explain to someone that they're being hurtful when they think they're super progressive and liberal already? Oh, no. I'm currently back with my parents during lockdown for the first time since uni, and I'm not loving it. I'm ace, and I've been out in other cities I've lived in for years. My mom is what you would define as liberal elite. She is a metropolitan journalist who knows lots of gay people and does lots of extra charity work for the refugee crisis and zero plastic organizations. I think she would actually love it if I was gay so she could tell people she had a gay daughter, but she's really disparaging about other parts of the LGBTQIA spectrum, especially my non-binary friends. I spent a lot of time explaining the J.K. Rowling situation to her, which baffles her because I was such a huge fan who went to all the midnight releases. I think she's stuck in second wave feminism, but believes she's so forward thinking. As being asexual hasn't been in the mainstream consciousness very long, if ever, I don't think it will ever go well coming out to her. How can I get her to see that she still has things to learn? It's been great watching you guys grow these last five years. Allison, you have to read that out loud now. <laughs> I like that that has stuck. Okay, in terms of how to explain to someone that they're being hurtful when they think they're super progressive and liberal, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head with second wave feminism. I think a lot of older women have ideas of feminism that stems from um, like a more uh, like an Andrea Dworkin or like a more um, black and white version of feminism. Um, and, and obviously stuff has evolved heavily since then. And we've, we've come to, uh, include pr being pro-sex work in feminism in, in a way that I think past feminism hasn't. Um, and so I, I think like your mom obviously has the right intentions, but does she, I don't know. I mean, I think that if you're only willing to go to a certain place yeah, and you're not willing to go outside of your comfort zone. Then is your intentions correct or are you just like self-gratifying yourself for like doing the little bit of work that you did? That is true. I think there is this common thing where people uh, can accept the L and G and even B parts of the spectrum. But once it reaches trans people and, and, um, and non-binary people, uh, which sometimes is the same thing, that they they can't they can't wrap their brain around it. They cannot get it. There's like a really big difference between accepting sexuality and accepting gender. Um, and so I think like a lot of feminists are taught to accept sexuality, but they cannot accept any sort of gender nonconforming or gender variance. Um, and there's a lot of uh, really twisted reasons for that. But you have to, you're right, you have to go outside your comfort zone. I don't think she's like self-gratifying the mom, but I think like the biggest 
push to you on your views is the stuff you don't understand. And and if you don't understand something, you still have to respect it. If she just didn't know, whatever, but you've spent time explaining um, non-binary friends to her and you've spent time explaining why the J.K. Rowling situation, which is that J.K. Rowling has uh, fully unmasked as a trans-exclusionary radical feminist um, or just a transphobe in general, uh, that in the name of some sort of misguided protection of women, um, which you can read about, and it's very disappointing, but Basically, like you have approached her with these things and it seems to me like you've been met with resistance. And that's the real problem. Like if you don't know, okay, but if you are being told, especially by your daughter who you love and you still don't want to address it or or learn more or change, that shows the limits of your liberalism or your feminism. I also think this applies so much to Medicare for all and abolishing the police. Mm -hmm. I think that there's so many lifelong Democrats who are like, I'm liberal. I love everybody. I'm, you know, but yeah, like if you don't support Medicare for all, you're refusing to acknowledge the reality of this country. Like you're refusing to, to understand like what the reality is like for people that are not you. And yeah. how much this healthcare industry has hurt so many people and continues to hurt so many people. And also, you're not doing the research to understand why doing the half-assed version of, like, expanding Medicare but maintaining some private health insurance. Like, you're stopping at, you're stopping at the stuff that makes you comfortable and the and that real— doesn't, And that then forcing more change or more progress, as soon as it starts to negatively affect you— or yes. affect your point of view, then that's where you stop. Yes, the real work is done when you push past that. Yeah. There is also a huge difference that I think we've addressed briefly on this show between liberal and leftist. And I would identify uh, now primarily in the last, I mean, I have changed a lot in the last year, but I would say in the last year, I've gone completely leftist. I don't know that I would identify as a Democrat. I don't know that I was a de- would identify as a liberal. And I think there is a distinct difference between liberal and leftist. Um, can where you leftist, explain that a little bit more? Sure. Liberals, I think, believe we can work within the system. And um, this is just very simple. And leftists believe uh, we need to, like, get rid of the system. And so I think there's, I think I've really been radicalized in the last few months and like open, my eyes have been open to a lot of things that like are just not able to be reformed and are just, I don't feel that we have the time anymore to work with within the system. So I've become increasingly radicalized. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's liberal within the systems that are working for them. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like, yeah, of course, like, I, I don't want, you know, these terrible, like, things to happen. Like, you know, obviously, this listener is from London, but like, to put it back into what's going on in America, like, I don't want, you know, BLM protesters to be attacked by the police and mm-hmm. people, there should be a right of speech. But like, as soon as it's like, okay, so then how do we actually break down these systems that is causing the systematic racism? How do we actually start the real work that will mean that people don't have to literally take to the streets? Then it's like, oh, well, I don't know. That's, you know, that's a little much. What if I get robbed? <laughs> it's like, right. Ah! It's like, I need the police. This is an interesting thing is I think it requires a lot of thinking. So my partner is a musician and their band is is very leftist. And um, they got their van got broken into in San Francisco, which has very strong policing that is very racist. I mean, 
duh, and has um, and has a, a huge homeless population that isn't being served. And so the the person broke in and took a couple of things and broke the window. And Mal and the band decided not to call the police. They just went mm-hmm. and got the window fixed. And the reason they didn't call the police is because they were like, we don't want to bring the police into this community. We don't need to give the police a reason to be searching people. Basically, like, they were like, we don't need the police for this. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, like, the extra step in thinking that goes beyond, you know, people saying, well, what if we had more female police officers? Wouldn't that soften? the?" And then it's like, no, honey, like, no. So I think it's hard to push people to a, a way of thinking that they've never considered because in your eyes, it's like someone smashed your window, you call the police. But like, there's so much context that I think people would make people uncomfortable and they just don't, they haven't gotten there yet. And and it, maybe it'll take a little bit of time for your mom to get there. I think you should talk to her about it. And I think when you do, you should say, look, with my asexuality and also with friends of mine who are non-binary or uh, like, you don't have to understand it and maybe you won't ever reach a place where you understand it but you have to respect it like and that's obvious- how i feel about so many things i don't understand tons of things but that mm-hmm. like but as soon as someone tells me that that's their experience and that's the way things work then i go okay <laughs> right right <You> know? <laughs> and i think there's a lot of pushback on gender and asexuality way more so than because there's been more work done to make mm-hmm. gay and, and lesbian uh, mainstream in a way that, like, you're right, other things haven't been in the mainstream consciousness. So I I feel like you have to give her the benefit of the doubt. Like, you're saying you don't feel like it would go well, but I feel like you have to at least try because she's not going to – she's in the, all of these spaces and she doesn't have all of the work done. And so mm-hmm. – I know that sucks, but I think like giving her a face to a thing, like being like, these are my friends that are this and you have to see this and this is your daughter and you have to see this. Maybe, unfortunately, people sometimes change just because of who is in front of them. I definitely agree that you you should come out to her and if there is pushback, then you should push back again. You know, like I think mm-hmm. it's definitely worth the conversation, worth the coming out. And then also like we always talk about, the fact that someone's initial reaction might not be their ultimate reaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this might be a case where like she's just going to take a little longer to like get up to speed to learn to expand her mindset. Um, and it sucks that like you might have to be the one to sort of like force that process along. Mm-hmm. But it's also, I think, worth it because she is your mom and you do want to get to a place of her understanding and respecting your lifestyle. Right. And where you can feel like you can openly talk with her. And you know Mm -hmm. what? It may it may help her in these circles that she's in. My partner is is trans non-binary and my parents are incredibly supportive of the LG. I would say the LGB and then learned about the T portion and are, I think, better people for it in the in the realms which in they they work like my dad you know, does a lot of work in the addiction community where a lot of people are queer or uh, or trans. And so I think like having this in his life has helped him be able to speak to people more and um, have a better understanding of different groups. And like because he's in these spaces where those people are or like, you know, my mom's a lawyer and having a queer daughter and and like a, a trans quote unquote son-in-law uh, is like you know, uh, uh, I think helps her to expand her mind, too. And they're both liberal and they're both in these liberal spaces and talking to liberal people. And I think, like, 
this only betters their ability to work in those spaces, if that makes sense. Do you think that the approach should be confrontational in terms of like bringing up second wave feminism to her mom? I mean, I did this with my parents where I think I was like, look, you guys have done the work up to where you are, but this generation is a little bit different. And this generation has thought of things further ahead. And like, there's other stuff going on now that like people are more out about and more accepting about. Um, You know, my mom had to learn with like body positivity. My mom was like, when I was growing up, people with bodies that weren't stick thin didn't wear bikinis. Mm -hmm. And I was like, welcome to the brave new world. Or Mm -hmm. like, she's very supportive of queer people but she didn't really know any trans people. And now there's like so many friends of mine. One of my friends who does not identify as trans uh, got top surgery um, because they're just gender nonconforming and they just wanted it. Um, but they don't they don't identify as like a trans man or a trans mask in any way. And my dad was like, well, then why would you do that? And I was like, times are changing. I don't know. Times are different. Like, <laughs> And then he was like, oh, OK. Like, as long as you can be like, look, things are different now and you just have to push yourself a little bit. And my parents were like, oh, all right. Like, cool. These, this are, is different. Are, are things different or is there just more openness and acceptance of things? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, well, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I think that that's also part of it is being like, it's not like this is a phase. It's just like people are now feeling more comfortable doing the things that they've always wanted to be able to do. Or that have they have been doing it. It just hasn't been hasn't in the mainstream been in your- consciousness. Totally. Yeah. I think it's just like people are are in better places to be able to express and talk about and show who they really are. And that's like, that's, isn't that a good thing? Isn't that a good thing, mom? You know? And I also think that with so many people being so bigoted and so close-minded that if you're not that, then you can feel like, but I'm accepting, Mm -hmm, you know? mm -hmm. So like, I'm sure that your mom thinks that she's accepting and would like be surprised to hear you talk about her in this way. Um, And that's, again, like her having to like actually become self-aware and actually look into what her thoughts are and see where her barriers are and see where her prejudices are and know that just because those initial thoughts and those initial biases pop up doesn't mean that she can't like plow through them. Right, exactly. There's like always more work to be done. There's always more knowledge to learn. And I think that like changing your mindset to I have no idea you know, of like, mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. know other people's experiences. I don't know, you know, like I, I think this is often, I've seen a lot of white people really struggle with cultural appropriation mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. understanding the impact of that. And like, just like having a mind, like confusion of like, to them, if you're, if you're copying something, it's, it's showing that you like it and that like, it's cool. And wouldn't you want to share different cultures and cultures always share and like, and like really having like a mind block when it comes to the issue of cultural appropriation. And I think that the work is saying, okay, I might not ever fully grasp this, but I have to understand that it's still wrong. <laughs> you know, yeah. that like there are other people whose experiences are so different from mine and they're telling me that it is bad and that it makes them uncomfortable and that it has done damage to their communities and, you know, minorities and that it is therefore a bad thing. And therefore, I have to believe that I have to believe what they're telling me. Yeah. And I think that that's a really big shift. And that's like the way to approach all of this stuff. 
Yes. Part of your feminism has to be a willingness to change and open and learn and mm-hmm. not and not get defensive and not think that. Right. You, and to, you, and to yeah. say and to be able to recognize that your feminism isn't perfect. Mm-hmm. And if you're a white woman, your feminism is set up to not be perfect because yep, yep, you are yep, yep. benefiting off of racism and you always yeah. have been. And also just the history of feminism has always highlighted white feminists because our society is racist. So yeah. like dealing with that discomfort and like recognizing that instead of being like, no, I'm different. Mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm. done the work. Mm-hmm. I, I no, I understand like actually acknowledging that like, of course you're fucked up and of course you yeah. made mistakes and then striving to be better. And specifically to your mom as a presumably cis person and allosexual person, which is someone who is not asexual, um, you know, whatever you're not, it applies anyway. Like whatever you're not, you should think about learning from and hearing from the people who are. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. But talk to your mom, you know, again, like. Just it might the be way a few assume, conversations. Like, might be a few conversations, but just the way that you're making assumptions about how she'll re- respond, you're you're still making assumptions. So you really never know what someone's going to say until you're actually having that conversation with them. Right. So I hope that that helps. Please let us know uh, what happens. Also, just make her listen to this podcast. Uh, if that's just should ever be advice for everything. Like, hey, you don't have the conversation. We'll just we will this person for you. We will have the conversation. <laughs> yeah. If you want to submit your international questions, send it to justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. That's justbetweenuspod at gmail.com. Up next, we've got a juicy interview with our highly esteemed guest, Theo Henderson of the We The Unhoused podcast. Stick around. Just between Hi everyone, Allison here. Anyone who knows me well knows that I love to read. I am always looking for new books and that is why I am so excited that this episode is sponsored by Book of the Month. Book of the Month's mission is to help readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of emerging authors. It was so fun for me to get to pick which book I wanted to read this month and have it shipped right to my door. Book of the Month makes it easy to decide which book to read next. Each month, the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles. They pick some of the best new books for you to choose from. All the books are good, so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month. Books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment. And she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic a new husband comes out and she's she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best it is right up my alley and i love it so much so if you want to take part in book of the month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for five dollars with code pedals that's five dollars off with code pedals i cannot recommend this enough Just 
Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Theo Henderson, who is the creator and host of We the Unhoused podcast. Hello, Theo. Hello, everyone. Can you tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and what you're trying to accomplish with it? Sure. Um, my podcast is called We the Unhoused and is dealing with the voices of the unhoused community. And in what I hope to accomplish with it is to educate people about um, the unhoused co- condition as well as to bring back a sense of humanity. Mainstream media, unfortunately, does not always present the unhoused in the most uh, humane of lights. To that end, I use the opportunity to use uh, it to have a safe space, as a not judgmental, no finger blaming or finger wagging, if you will, um, that kind of thing. So tell us a bit about you, though. Like, how did you come to start the podcast? Well, I have uh, seven years of lived experience. I'm currently unhoused and I have been beset by people, sometimes well-meaning and sometimes very malicious, and repeating some harmful stereotypes about unhoused people. And I spent a lot of labor, emotional labor, on trying to educate them. And then it came to me that maybe this is a, a snapshot of society at large. Maybe I could do something a little bit more uh, impactful by creating a media outlet for unhoused community members, dealing with the issues that are, are germane to unhoused. Like, for example, um, if there's uh, resources that come up available, um, the realities or the struggles of the unhoused, or, for example, the pandemic, how to cope and navigate through some of the perils and the complexities that creates itself here. So you would say the show is for unhoused people, but also for like other people to listen to and learn. Like, do you try to balance that with the information? Yeah, absolutely. It's indeed um, because I have a segment called uh, Unhoused News, um, and it's deliberately designed for the unhoused to be aware of the news that pertains to them. Because mainstream media has news, but it's not always pertaining to the unhoused, and the unhoused doesn't get the kind of gravitas of the situation that it deserves. So if there is a crime is against unhoused, like the vigilantism with housed people against unhoused people, I highlight that. I highlight if they are being targeted by, for example, in the last episode about uh, the police officer that was recently sentenced for forcing an unhoused man to lick a urinal. And that came due to the fact that unhoused community had uh, reached out and used this medium to get the story out there about what things are going on and they have a sense of power and agency if there is some legal enforcement or house people that are breaking the law that they have some recourse to uh, be able to hold on to. How did you come to be unhoused? I came unhoused like many 60,000 unhoused people. I became ill and I was unable to pay the rent and recuperate at the same time. And therein lies a whole downward spiral in this country that healthcare is too damn expensive as well as rent is too damn high. Um, I didn't become immediately out on the street. I had to go through several different phases of houselessness uh, from um, staying with friends, uh, living on the couch or sleeping in the car, uh, squatting in buildings or sleeping on the bus, uh, different in the libraries, uh, the different different uh, channels until it became too uh, sustainable and too much uh chaotic for me to, and then I baby started to stay in the park. I did a little research into your background and you have been waiting to get housed, you know, through the city for six years. Is that correct? That's correct. To be uh, clear, the waiting list is over 10 years, um, which <gasps> debunks the myth that unhoused people don't want help. If that was the case, then people would have been housed immediately. But the, uh, the gargantuan uh, 
task of finding housing while you're living on the streets from moment to moment, as well as the bureaucratic red tape, those things provide a very difficult uh, endeavor that even house people would find daunting themselves. What are some major misconceptions about why people become unhoused that you think are harmful and not true? There are three of them, I would say. that The first one is I hear um, often is unhoused people are mentally ill and drug addicted, and all of them are harmful. The third one is that they don't want help. Um, the truth of the matter is there are 60,000 unhoused people, and it's a fraction of that is maybe uh, have those maladies. But the reality of it is, even when we're talking about that, many of them were not addicted to substances until they became unhoused because people uh, romanticize that being unhoused is like a luxury, you're living in the lap of luxury. But it is a very hard life, and it's very difficult, and it's very challenging, and it's very um, unpredictable and volatile. Uh, Mm -hmm. So when you try to communicate with people that have been educated by media, um, a shallow experience with unhoused people, you run away with those harmful myths and it makes it even more difficult for unhoused people to get the the assistance um, that they need. I mean, even if you are mentally ill or drug addicted, that doesn't mean you don't deserve housing. Like that's another hurdle to, to overcome is the way people think about it. But here is the thing is, and what we have to, it's a larger issue at the hand is we as a society are a blaming and shaming society. We don't look at mental health and substance usage as a disease, as an issue. For example, um, I was interviewing a husband and wife. Um, the husband has stage four cancer and the wife is addicted to substances and they relied on each other um, because both of them have an illness and they are more humane about it and understanding that in order for us to really look at ourselves, how do we treat people that are vulnerable and need the assistance that they need? Um, we don't do that well. We, we blame them. We blame her because she's addicted to substances because it does something chemically through the brain. And addiction is a health issue, but our society mm-hmm. doesn't look at it like that. They look at able-bodied people that are just choosing to use, shoot, shoot up or whatever, but mm-hmm. and, or mentally ill people they may look normal, but they have mental health issues that are internally, and we don't we don't uh, recognize that. We virtue signal. We have to have a, a cast, or we have to be on uh, on a wheelchair to be empathetic to people's plights. Mm-hmm. Why do you prefer the term unhoused versus homeless? People use it in the most, most negative light. If you look on to any mainstream media uh, outlet, they are using it always in a way of putting someone down, associated criminality with it. And how is, for example, and I used it clearly, is because I didn't have a place to stay, but I had a community. Incidentally, mm-hmm. many unhoused people stay in the communities that they were evicted from or they had uh, family ties with, and they are safe in those environments because they know the people or they knew the people that in that community. That was the same thing with me. That's why I stayed in Chinatown Park, because... I was evicted in uh, in Chinatown and those people knew me and I knew them and I, uh, I was comfortable with them and they were comfortable with me. Can you talk a little bit about what it's been like during the pandemic and uh, Los Angeles's response to the unhoused community specifically? Well, that um, there's not enough time in your show to be able to, to give it the <laughs> attention that it deserves. But I will give you a, a snapshot uh, on it. When the shelter in place happened, I can tell you viscerally, and I have a excellent uh, cartoonist that we try to uh, show the comic on what happened. It was one day, businesses were open, people were milling about and, and going about their business. And the next day, the shelter in place order hit in place, and then everything just shut down. 
and to the unhoused community in order for them to survive, they go to libraries to charge their phones. They use the bathrooms to maybe do sponge baths and recreation centers and things like that. That all was shut down. And I unfortunately had uh, incurred an injury and um, I was on a walker and I had to hobble to find the thing was shut down. And then I had to take over two hours to find a bathroom. And then I had then I had another gargantuan task, as like all unhoused people, is I had to try to find something to eat. I was on, um, it is called a SNAP program. And SNAP program has a hot meal place where you can order a hot meal and you have to eat it inside the building. Those places were shut down. So then we couldn't find any place to eat. And mm. when you go to the grocery stores, I don't know if you remember seeing on the news, people were hoarding essential things. I mean, mm-hmm. water, uh, hand sanitizer, toilet paper, food. I mean, just basic. It was just some of the shows were just basically empty and people were fighting over the last toilet paper or, you know, those kind of things um, created a, a, a confusion for unhoused people. And as well as like a, a major starvation period, because unhoused people didn't receive those donors that would come and give food. People were afraid uh, to hand out food to unhoused people and there was no mask to be given. So uh, some of the citizens like um, the uh, Democratic Socialist Association and Street Watch and K-Town for All, Resisterhood, uh, About My Father's Business, these organizations are not paid by the government. They had uh, lengthy discussions on how we could provide what the city refused to provide. And that is a, a continuation of services for our most forgotten population, which are the unhoused. Um, coupled by that, um, we had um, uh, outreach where people would go and give food and, and give water and mask and education on what was going on because many of the unhoused that I interviewed had no earthly idea what the hell was going on. <laughs> it's just like, it became like a zombie apocalypse. You know, nobody knew mm-hmm. uh, what was going on. I just, they just seen people just staying away from them. And then um, we, of course, inevitably are going to be blamed for the COVID-19, which in reality, we had nothing to do with. We don't travel out going to Charlotte's and, and visiting over the wor- all over the world. We were just, you know, sheltering in place or in our own little encampments. So in terms of the city's response, right, I mean, that seems pretty typical. Like Los Angeles mm-hmm. has a, a huge, a huge unhoused population. And I was listening to your show and you were talking about the criminalizing of of being unhoused. And can you talk about, I know, again, that's probably like four or five podcast episodes worth. Um, but can you talk a little bit about like why that's ineffective and what they try to do? Because our society in the city has this uh, viewpoint of unhoused as criminalities and criminals. And this goes back many years before uh, even today, that the city believes that they, if they have come off with this political, compassionate, but firm and showing that they are getting tough on criminality with unhoused people. Many unhoused people are faced with, uh, for example, open harassment from police officers, um, being thrown against the wall, checked for warrants. And the warrants, and to be clear, the warrants are for quality of life crimes. And that means sitting or sleeping or sleeping on, on the sidewalk. If you're unhoused and you don't have the financial wherewithal to pay for these tickets, then you and it becomes a bench warrant. That's what works in here in, in Los Angeles, California. So then you're criminalized. Let's say, for example, if you're trying to get up off the street and then you have to go and apply for an apartment, those records are still there. And, and expungement is still unacceptable if, even if you can get to the expungement because there's a big waiting list for that. Uh, so i give you an example. We have a program called Project Room Key. And even though that that program is not being taken care of now, it's on its verge of being um, 
let go or cut off because uh, they say they have lack of money. But they last week had a person that worked at Los Angeles Housing Authority, along with an armed police escort, to go to encampment to encampment, asking did they want help. Now, mind you, you the first person that unhoused people usually see when people complain are police officers. They are the ones that ticket to them. They're the ones that arrest them. They're even the ones that commit violent acts or use of force, which was 26%. So with that in mind, why in the world would anyone want to be running around in front of a goon, goon squad and accepting help, even though that they, it, it creates an intimidating um, environment and, and service providers in the city and others, they refuse to understand that. They refuse to care and they refuse to be sensitive about that issue. What policies do you think would actually work and, and help your community? The thing I think would most important is like the defundment of police officers. We have got mm-hmm. to get them out of the conversation where it's mental health and substance usage. We have got to take the money from over $3.2 or $3.9 billion that they receive and start to influence that money into the communities that need it. For example, um, places where people can have uh, harm reduction, um, that they can get needles and get education and get treatment for substance usage and look at it like that meeting the unhoused community where they are instead of virtual signaling that some unhoused people get help and not. Uh, like, for example, uh, Mitchell Farrell, uh, who has been very antagonistic to the unhoused community, having secret uh, police orders to uh, terrorize unhoused people in the middle of the night, shutting down the bathrooms. He pretended he was very concerned, and he, he and Lhasa went down to find an unhoused husband and wife and an infant child that has been living in the park for over several months. And the community of house, unhoused people were taking care of them, providing pampers and milk and, and, and things like that. These are the things that, uh, con- considering the fact that we're going to be evicting a lot of people due to COVID-19 and the rent, our, uh, rent moratorium is coming to an end, uh, we need to have a true understanding and education about what unhoused mean. There are several forms mm-hmm. of houselessness. And it's just not just an encampment. There are people that are working may even have been working beside you that have been living in their car. There have been people mm-hmm. that you may have, and I'm just not saying you guys here, but I, I knew one time when I was working um, how people next to me, uh, my coworkers were vilifying on house people saying that they don't want this and that. And I had to stay in the, in the closet, if you will, and not mention that, hell, I'm living right out in a park bench and I have to get up early in the morning to run to uh, the YMCA or the bathroom to do a sponge bath so I can be on time for work. So these are the mm-hmm. things that we need to, as a society, really need to be honest with ourselves and say, being poor and being unhoused is not a crime, and we should really change the way we look at and have empathy for our fellow uh, brothers and sisters that are in the streets. Can you talk a little bit about harm reduction and what what that is and how it's beneficial? Yes, harm reduction is beneficial because we have a narrative about uh, substance usage. Substance usage is a health issue, it's a disease. Harm reduction is, it is getting, meeting people where they're at, providing um, maybe the, uh, because some of the, uh, the drugs that they have, is very difficult to go off cold turkey because it can it jeopardize one's life, to teach them how to be able to uh, wean themselves off of these, uh, these, these drugs. Also to provide maybe the necessary medical treatments that may be needed for them to uh, sustain themselves because once their body has relied on certain substances for years to just snatch them off of it, it causes um, consequences or uh, medical complications. And we need to be uh, be mindful of that. 
Um, harm reduction is also uh, giving Narcan for people that are out in the street. And if they overdose, that we need to train and educate people about how we need to, um, uh, to, to revive them and to get them the appropriate help. That's what the funding of the police would be advantageous a way of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. to do that. The Hollywood Health Center does some things like that. Street Watch has a Narcan program. These things that our whole society needs to be educated on and to uh, maybe it wouldn't be such of a stigma for people to receive help or be afraid to receive help if we become much more compassionate toward people that are, are, are addicted in these uh, substances. Is the problem that they just, they don't care or like why why not do all of these things that seem that seem like an obvious redirection of funds like why well, is it just they don't they don't care well it's partly that and it's partly what our education system has been uh, focused on i grew up in the era of people talking about law and order i grew up in the era where we heard nancy reagan saying just say no and people just magically just think that's going to solve the, uh, the drug crisis and then it becomes an us versus them thing uh, when the crack epidemic hit in my community, uh, we had a very, uh, very hostile response, uh, even in our African-American community against it. We really didn't have a full understanding about what drug addiction was about. Uh, we just thought it was a choice. People like to get high and this and this. And so I think that part of it is uh, coupled with uh, people's religious beliefs, as well as um, the propaganda that our city officials love to put out. And I can remember uh, we ever watched those uh uh, shows that I used to hate it was cops. It was always trying to mm -hmm. pinpoint people and, and criminalize them, kicking in the door, making it sound like they were Pablo Escobar, and and you know it just was just it, it was very damaging, and it's very damaging now to even um, broach the topics because you know people are so entrenched in those viewpoints that we um, become um, we're at a standstill. So I think the newer generation, the younger generation, has a better opportunity than the older generation because they can. Uh, they they wasn't raised in those same um, deleterious kind of environments. What are some misunderstandings about like shelters? I know that a lot of people are like, well, why don't people just go to shelters? Well, now I would not advise anybody to go to shelters now due to COVID-19. But before mm -hmm. that, because unfortunately, the shelter systems that we've created, are, it's been based on the 1800s. We had this old idea that we can pack a hundred people inside and they can stay in and then we throw them out in the middle of the night and then they have and they have to find a job or or we it, it the whole idea is it, it was it was toxic and messed up but most often or not the shelters are not as it's very it's reflective on how our societal biases seep in we believe on how people are criminals so we're going to create a shelter like that so they're searched all the time we um, treat them like that they're criminals, so we give them a curfew that they have to be in. And if they don't follow that curfew, they're going to be thrown out. We believe that they uh, they have no business uh, um, having personal property other than a, grocery, a garbage bag. And if they have anything else and they don't want to uh, 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 go into the program, we throw them out or we throw their things out or we, we create body uh, uh, searches on, on them or we give them mandatory meetings. And it's it, so... Those those re restrictive things is it's a it's a turnoff to unhoused people where they have some a sense of agency and autonomy. When you have been stripped of everything, the only thing you have is your autonomy and agency because you can create the control of your own uh, maybe just a little bit of how you will handle certain situations and you can keep all of your things that you need in a in a way that you don't have to get it thrown out or have to be barked at or say that you're non-compliant and all of those kind of things. 
there is some violence there, but you have to understand if you pack a bunch of people together like they did when I was mm-hmm. growing up in, in those projects, it's inevitable because we're like packed on like we're in a, uh, in, in a, in a, I hate to say it like a, in a camp. So those things are going to create that kind of environment. So um, I think we should re- rethink of the idea of shelters in the respect of more spacious, more uh, a set place where unhoused people can have a storage spot and then they can have mm-hmm. places where they have the essential things. And this, this the whole case management idea, it needs to change too. Uh, we need to be honest that when we put people in the shelters, it's only usually three months to six months and they either have to find a job or an apartment or they just need to, or they're going to be thrown out. There's a housing crisis. And no matter how many times that we try to make it unhoused people's fault, it's not their fault that there's a limitation on housing, um, the barriers that they have being unhoused and being criminalized. And, 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 and it's just, we, we need to really overhaul that system as well. I mean, there's just such a push towards controlling and criminalizing anyone in poverty. I, yeah, yeah. I just, it just seems so obvious what to do. And then nobody does it. Indeed, yes. <laughs> and it's like, I guarantee you, it would be easier just because we spent over $30 million in sweeps that, and then $60 million the previous year over attacking unhoused people where they have nowhere to go. You may run them out for a moment, but they got to come back. They're going to come back. I mean, whereas we could have taken that money that we give to the police, like for example, the libraries and other places keep throwing money into the cities, throwing over 50% of the budget at the police. I mean, you know, it never dawns on people, you know what, we need to stop this. We need to start mm-hmm. cutting, giving the fat and putting the monies where it would, where we won't have these problems, but we, we can't do that. What can the individual do? You know, like how can they form better relationships with the unhoused people in their community? How can they make sure that they're supporting the right the right candidates? Like what what advice would you give to people who who want to help? Again, that there's not enough time in, uh, on your show for that, but I can give you a snapshot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are people, and I, I have been uh, very fortunate and blessed with people from Streetwatch, uh, about my father's business, um, K-Town for All, um, People's Budget, these kind of places. These are excellent places where you can find yourself in attaching yourself to a community of people just like you that want to help. Um, they don't know mm-hmm. exactly how to you know, help, but then they can be educated by these established places that are not from government orientated. And then you can go and, and, and contribute in that respect. Um, there, there's a host of things um, that you could be doing, like giving cold water on a hot day. People don't realize that uh, to unhoused community members, um, getting to know them, saying good morning, talking to them and, and humanizing them. And they will remember you. <laughs> if, if you speak to them one time and they see you again, they will acknowledge you and you will acknowledge each other. And then a conversation can ensue. Now, mm-hmm. on saying that, too, is because people um, have become uh, have stated to me that they're afraid if someone's going through a, a, a crisis. Now, I want to say this. Uh, when they're in crisis, the best thing you could do is just allow them to be safe about their crisis and not engage them until they have um, come collected themselves. And even then, after that, you could say, are you okay? Do you need anything? Um, if there's something I can do, I can probably call someone to, you know, the resources that I just mentioned to find a way to be able to get them to connect it. Because that's, that's a humane way. 
Um, I'm not telling mm-hmm. you to run in like uh, and, and grab them and things because sometimes maybe they're paranoid and they're afraid that someone's going to attack them or they may be reliving trauma because there's uh, a type of trauma that unhoused people go through from police harassment, police violence, unhoused um, uh, vigilantism from housed people throwing uh, feces and things like that. So you have to keep in mind that they may be going through it or reliving that or something triggered them or they are maybe coming down off of substances as well. So it's being able to know when and where and when to pick and choose your conversation and um, your engagement. So if we can do that as a society, I think we will be on a better path than um, running around demonizing vulnerable people and punching down. Mm-hmm. And you would recommend, you know, if someone seems like they do need medical attention or help, probably calling in the police is not the right answer, right? You would recommend call it, calling in these organizations that, that are not related to the government. Yes, exactly. I totally agree with that. Yes, because <laughs> they cause more damage than they do help. Absolutely. Totally. So it can be beneficial to make sure that you're familiar with those organizations in your city Absolutely. and have, have exactly. their contact information ready so exactly. that you can have people to call. Exactly. And then, too, you know, it's like, for example, you, you will find out once you become part of the community, you can have you're going to find you're going to have activated maybe five or ten people that will come with you and, you you know, and start off something very positive and get to know the people. And you never know what, who, who you touch and may be able to help, too. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this. I think that a lot of people are super undereducated about this part of of humanity. Um, And would you like to play a game show? Oh, yes, I was expecting it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this game show is called Hypotheticals. You and Gabby are my contestants. I'm going to give you a series of hypothetical situations. You can ask any, like, clarifying questions you want, and then you would tell me what you would do in that scenario. Um, And then I just decide if I like your answer. (laughs) And that's how you win or lose. All right. So our first game is called, Are You a Terrible Parent? You've noticed that lately your 15-year-old has been a rude, ungrateful piece of shit. So for Christmas, you don't give them any presents and announce Santa Claus thinks they need to do some self-improvement. Your child is 15 and knows that you are Santa Claus. Are you a terrible parent? To repeat, you got them nothing and your other child got a regular amount of gifts. Wow, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, I think I think the kid would definitely think I'm a ter- terrible parent, no doubt about it, uh, <laughs> and probably be looking. But are you really? Uh, I would say I would think I would need to work on improving uh, my my skills and being a better parent because not to give the kid anything, even though, yeah, we all have our moments that we are not at our best, you know, to punish them completely, for, uh, you know, even though they know I'm, a, a, yeah, no, I wouldn't, I think I would need to, I think I would need to go have a D, get a grade, a D on that, need improvement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because if he, if he knows that I'm Santa Claus, and that's so passive aggressive to be like, Santa yeah. Claus thinks you need to do better, <laughs> and it's just you. Yeah. Yeah, you're a terrible parent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, our next game is called Would You Lie or Tell the Truth? Your 95-year-old liberal-loving grandma is on her deathbed the night of the 2020 presidential election. Mm-hmm. Right before she passes, she asks who won. You just found out that Trump won. Would you lie or tell the truth? Lie. 
I would uh, tell the truth. <laughs> what? Really? But she's, about to, she's about to die, Theo. Who cares? I would think because it would be tarnishing her legacy as a, as a, a kick-ass uh, liberal person that fights for justice, that she knows that the fight still goes on, and I would probably tell her that I'll keep up the fight to always what she's done. But that is just me. Maybe I'm just too taking it too serious. <laughs> oh my God, this game is hard when the other person is a good person. Yeah. <laughs> You're really messing up, Gabby. I'm sorry. I- No, it's great. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think all the time about how great it is that both of my grandmothers didn't live to see this because I think Mm -hmm. they would be very upset. You know, I'm going to give it to Theo because I love the idea that we're going to keep the fight going. I also like when when Gabby loses. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our final game. Is this person an alien or just rude? While in the park, you see someone throw their trash on the ground. Mm -hmm. When you confront them about this, they say, don't worry, someone will come pick it up. I promise I'm very rich. Are they an alien or just rude? I I would let go with uh, C, their butthole. (laughs) Of course, if you want uh, the polite answer, I would say rude. I think that they're they're an alien and they don't understand what the word rich means. And they think that it means that someone walks behind you and cleans up all your garbage, which I guess is what rich means. <laughs> yeah, that but, is yeah, what rich yeah. means. But yeah, how do yeah. they, I mean, let me ask a follow-up. Who do they say is going to come pick it up? Do they know? <laughs> they just say, they just say someone. And when you ask who it is, they say Rex. Who's Rex? That's a good question. Yeah. How much garbage is it? Uh, it's like um a sandwich wrapper. So it's just a small piece of garbage. Yeah, but then two minutes later, you actually see a little creature named Rex come and pick it up because they are an alien. Oh, oh! well, then. <laughs> then see? it is that one. <laughs> <laughs> so Rex's job on this planet is just to pick up garbage for rich people? Well, no. On their planet, they each have a, a little creature that, like, you know kind of follows them around and cleans up all of their messes, but they're only assigned to one primary alien. Like, if they poop themselves, does Rex clean it up? Absolutely. Okay, well, then they're an alien. <laughs> That's what I said. <laughs> nah, okay, now that okay. I can hurt this, yeah, they're alien. I was just thinking it was the alien butthole then. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, all, they're also a butthole, but they also yeah. are an alien. <laughs> yeah. So even amongst their alien culture, they are a butthole. Definitely, because yeah. they're well, very so- rude to Rex. So we're both right. Yep. <laughs> Rude <Yeah>. alien. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find out more about your work and your podcast? My podcast is on uh, YouTube, SoundCloud, TikTok, and I'm always on Twitter and Instagram. Um, if they want to uh, subscribe to my Patreon, it's Weedy and House, and I have Venmo, all of that, because it helps keep me going and helps me get my meal or food and different things uh, during this pandemic. So I, I really appreciate some of the outpouring of support and, and, and help that they can give me. And uh, We the Unhoused is on Spotify, too. That's where I'm listening to it. Thank you so much for, for being so our much. guest. Thank you very much. I enjoyed, I enjoyed this interview very much. Stick around after the break. We'll be talking all about our writing process. Back 
to just between us. It's time for topics. X X X X X X X X X baby. Baby. Hello. Hi. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't say anything, and neither did I. <laughs> I know, but it was kind of cute. <laughs> um. So this week, I thought about um we could maybe dive into our writing process because while this might not be interesting to everyone, I think that writing feels very elusive to a lot of people, including writers. <laughs> I have a hot button question, Allison. Yes. Hot, hot button topic here in the Gabby Dunn, Mal Blum uh, household, mm-hmm. which is my partner. Like for writing mm-hmm. as a writer, how much do you pull directly from your real life how much do you change things? Because Mal, Mal didn't realize that people pull from their real life. Mal thought fiction or scripts were like, you make it up. And I was like, no. So please answer the question so that I'm not in trouble all the time. They don't pull from their real life? Of course they do. They absolutely do. They're a musician. Yeah, but their what songs are, are like all deeply personal, no? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, of course I pull from my own life. I mean, that's cheating. I love to do that. I love whatever I'm like, what's a weird specific I need? And then I just pull from something that's real. <laughs> so if it involves another person, mm-hmm. do you run it by them? If it's fiction, no. If it's nonfiction, yes. Well, it depends. So like I'm writing a project that's like memoir self-help. And I like yesterday, I asked Jake about including something about him and I was like, okay, let me know if, if this is something you feel comfortable with. Like you can take some time to, to decide and get back to me. Um, okay. But then when I'm like writing about my ex-boyfriends, I don't ask their permission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I pull a lot from real life. Yeah, of Like course. a lot. I write about the, the people that are around me. I pull like directly from people I've, you know, seen in cafes or people that – you know, I really pull from everything around me. Mm-hmm. I pull names from people around me. Oh, I, I pull... definitely pull names. All my projects have my friends' last names in them. Absolutely. I pull I pull names. I pull, um, like, things. I think things that I write about, they come from everywhere. I mean, if you were to pick apart my writing, you would be able to pinpoint, like, this is from here. This is from there. Like, it's all kind of a mash but of things. But would I be able I to think... or only you able to? Because nobody knows your full life. That's true. I would be able to. I think like people I've dated would be able to pick themselves out. Um, so my ex-boyfriend, Josh Gondelman, uh, wrote a book and I read it and I knew certain things that he uses over and over again. And I and like certain motifs. And I know I also know that like he he pulled an example of something from my life. Like he's my older my oldest brother teaches golf. And likes to sort of uh, break boundaries by, like, contacting people in my life about his golf business. And Josh, in his book, has, like, a part where he's like, and uh, you can give this to your dad. You can give this to your mom. You can even give this to your brother who likes to push his golf business on people. And it sounds like something that is, like, a weird, weird specific. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was, like, from my life reading it. And I think I do that a lot, too, where I'll pull strange specifics because it's so much funnier and so like such a better uh, end product and writing process to pull specifics. But I think a lot of people who are not writers, they think everything comes off the top of our heads. Or when they're trying to write, they think that they have to do that. But you absolutely do not. (laughs) 
No, you can straight up pull from your life. I think also that's like makes for better, more specific writing. Totally. And I do that constantly. I'm writing something now and I'm I'm living in, I rented a house. I'm living in this house. And the whole thing just takes place in this house. Oh, like, really? <laughs> why wouldn't I? I'm not making up a house. Let me just pull. Obviously, like if you write science fiction, a lot of it is is made up. But a lot of it has to come from like stuff that you have witnessed or even like the characters in the crazy science fiction world come from people you know or people you've seen, I think. And I think it also a lot of times comes from and emulates like other media and art that you've taken in. So like, you know, a big part of when you're pitching a show, you always say what other shows it's like. Mm -hmm. And it's not because you're necessarily ripping off that show, but it's, you know, I didn't create like a dramedy nobody you know right. or like I didn't create soap operas but it's yes. a really good reference point and there are tropes and there's you know things specific to those genres that you're gonna use when you're when you're writing those genres yeah totally I mean I I have something coming out that it's set in the apocalypse mm-hmm. and it's like I didn't invent the apocalypse you just have to build the unique story within things that are tried and true um or by flipping something that's tried and true mm-hmm. And like, you know, when you're working in that world, that's so the apocalypse, obviously the details of that world are fictional, but then the characters mm-hmm. and the motivations and the personalities, mm-hmm. that's the stuff where you're still pulling from people, you know. Yeah. My partner has given me a specific, please do not write about me. Really? <laughs> yeah. Do not make characters based on me. Do not write about me. How do you feel um, about that? Well, there is this context thing where um, there is a long history of cis people writing about their trans partners mm. in, and profiting off of that. And so I get I get why they're anxious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also they feel like they want to own their stories because they're also a writer in a sense. Like they they write poetry, they write flash fiction, they write like music. So they're like, well, what if I want to use that for something? Mm. And I'm like, that's true. But part of my argument is like, if it's something that has to do with with something that happened between us, like I was also there. Yeah. So I can write about my side of it. I was also there. (laughs) What's flash fiction? Uh, Like short stories. Um, So I don't know. So I, that's a thing that we're going through now because my process is incredibly heavily pulling from my real life. See, I don't think that I do it like as consciously as the way you're describing it, except when I'm writing characters based on you. Which I've had to do a lot, you know? We've sold multiple yeah. TV shows that are based around the caricatures of our characters on JBU, the YouTube channel. And so mm-hmm. very much so I was pulling from you and things that had happened specifically to you and the way you talk and the personality you have. It's been slightly eerie that you have written me better than I exist. That <laughs> like, you, you have written me mm-hmm. uh in a way that is like more me than me well because it's you know it's dramatized so i've written right. i've written versions of you in so many different settings and so many different right. shows and that's been that honestly your character is probably the voice that i'm like most comfortable writing yeah it's very defined mm-hmm. But I'll take like from my sister. And it's funny because my sister had a conversation with my partner where my sister was like, that's just Gabby's process. Like you just have to get on board or get off. Like that's that's how she does it. Like she writes about me. She writes about my our dad and sister. Even like in my book, Bad With Money, my mom is still grappling with me having written about our family. Really? Yeah. She, she didn't love it. <laughs> um, and so she 
felt very exposed by that and very, and like, maybe I should have run more things by them, but also part of me has this feeling of like, y'all did what you did, (laughs) you know? Yeah. No, it's complicated. It's, I think it's the most complicated when it's nonfiction because then there's no plausible deniability. Then you're like, I was clearly writing about you. I say it's you. So when you're starting to write something, how does the idea come to you? I work a lot in themes. And so it's like, what theme do I want to explore? And then what is the story that supports that theme? So like the most recent pilot that I wrote, I wanted to kind of deal like the idea was basically about like being complicit with the people in your life. And like Mm -hmm. I wanted like, what would it be like if like Trump was your brother in law? Right. Is like basically what I wanted to explore and like with Ivanka and like, you know, how you like and all these people whose like families are Trump supporting, but then they they which they disapprove of, but they keep them in their life and what, you know, and Mm -hmm. like that world. Um, And so I kind of went from that idea and then was like, okay, so then how do I tell that story? Mm -hmm. Um, And that story ended up being told through an orphaned woman in Missouri who's marrying into a family of lawyers whose future brother-in-law is in, recently moved back from Saudi Arabia. And like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, and then you have yeah. to fill out all of these like crazy details and, and figure out where you want to set your world and your story. But like, I, I was doing it in service of that original theme and that original idea that I wanted to explore. How did the theme come to you though? Because I think a lot of people aren't writers are like, how did you even? I have no idea. Think- that's the thing. I feel like it's innate. I feel like it's it's like, I, I mean, right. Actually, sitting down to write is a job, and it's a thing that you like have to have the motivation to do because people have ideas and they just never do anything with it. But I don't know where ideas come. Like, I was like six years old writing stories about like going to soccer camp. I'd never been to soccer camp. How does that come out of you? Is that just like, is that just like a you're born with it? No, I mean, I I think that it's a it's a skill set that you nurture like this idea I had a long time ago and I had like written up like a a short pitch for it, but I didn't actually take it to script until like during quarantine. So Mm -hmm. I think there's all different routes and avenues and timelines, you know, and then like I think sometimes I have to sit down and I have to force an idea out of myself Mm -hmm. and then other times the idea just comes naturally. So it really depends. I think that the the tough work is um, in the completion of it, like you said, and in mm-hmm. figuring out, you know, the routine. So like right now I'm writing a book and I set a a word count limit for myself for the day. Right. Or word, word count um, goal. That you have to hit. Yeah. So like I try to at least hit a thousand words a day if I'm writing the book that day. Um, but like some days I write 1500, some one day I wrote 2000, you know, like it's Mm -hmm. so, um, uneven and some days it comes so much more naturally to me than other days. Um, but like having some goal in mind is really helpful. And like when I'm doing scripts, I have like a five to 10 page goal. So five Mm -hmm, is like, mm -hmm. if I don't accomplish five, I'm in big trouble. But like my goal is 10, (laughs) Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. but again, that varies so much based on the project, based on how I'm doing mentally and physically and how I am in that moment. But I think like uh, it's always helped me to treat it like work in a project that has to be done with clear set goals versus like, mm-hmm. well, when the when the feeling strikes, I'll wake up at two in the morning and just crank the whole thing out. <laughs> well, so I've worked both ways. I've worked the way that you're talking about. And I've also just uh, had a 
a manic episode where I wrote an entire movie in three days. Right. Was that movie good? No. I had to like go on the right meds, not have a manic episode, then actually sit down and like make the movie good and usable. Mm -hmm. And that took like, you know, months and months and months and like maybe a a full year to like finish that script to make it like actually a movie. But I I do have those moments of like it's 2 a.m. and I and I've and I've got it. Mm-hmm. Probably a lot of times it's not usable. I looked at my like f- uh, file of like short stories or things that I've started and it's 180 pages of fully unusable fiction material. But the thing is, is that you never <laughs> know when that idea or that character or that plot device you're then going to use in something else. Yes, that's true. So a lot of times I'll like steal from my own work because like that work never went anywhere. I never finished that project. And so it's all yours. (laughs) That's true. If I pass away, please don't publish my unpublished works. That's the first thing I'm going to do. No, (laughs) they're they're not good. Don't do it. They're not finished. Uh, I also think another big part of of the writing process is is getting to the place where you say good enough for other people to mm-hmm. read it. And like, if you mm-hmm. can never get there, then then you're you're screwed. And you have to finish. Like, mm-hmm. it has to be done so you can edit it. Yeah. So like, I'm like, ugh, this is not good. But like, I gotta finish it so I have something to show. So I have something to edit. Yeah. Because you have to finish it. It has to be done. And then once it's done, you can make it good. But it, it, it would, n- I would never write anything if as I was writing it, I was like, this is genius. <laughs> sometimes I feel that way. And sometimes I'm like, this is garbage. I don't know. <laughs> the idea is genius. Yeah. But then a lot of times you have to be like, I'll go back and make this good. I promise. Some, some stuff I've had to super rewrite and some stuff I haven't. It just really varies. Mm-hmm. You know, like for our books, like uh, there are very few. We notes. don't rewrite anything. Like, yeah, we got very few notes from our editor. And on, on, then on scripts, it's been rounds and rounds and rounds. And so, mm-hmm. you know, who knows? Yeah. I mean, I just think it's I just think it's so innate. And it just sometimes like obviously for projects, but like a lot of times it just spills out of me. And then I don't know what it's for or what it's going to be or what. What it like? I had this idea for the Audible project um, that I have coming out. I had this idea, and then like two years later, I I could make it into something. Mm-hmm. And I had I wrote up the idea and was like, I don't know if this is a show or a podcast or what this is, but I ha- I I'm gonna put this idea into a, f- a folder and see if like anything. And then like, luckily, you know, someone comes to me and says, Hey, we're looking for like an original podcast idea. Do you have any? And I go through and I'm like, well, this could be an original podcast. And then I flesh it out. I'd like to say that you've been very lucky. (laughs) I know. You know, like you, like, it's not often that easy, you guys. And I I know I don't, I I rarely have things just flowing out of me. For me, it's a lot more methodical and difficult. And, you know, so if, if that stuff doesn't come as naturally, it doesn't mean that you're not capable of it. No, totally. I am very, I'm, I am very lucky in that I have a lot of ideas. They are all, all but you've also unfinished. been lucky in terms of like being able to sell stuff yep. off of just an idea. And a lot of yep. people are not able to do that. Um, yep. 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 So. Totally. And I, I, I also think it's lucky that I just come up with, like, I just have ideas and I put them and I put them in a folder and then that I just like when someone comes to me and is like, do you have something for this? I do. Mm-hmm. I think I was, I mean, I don't, 
don't know. I don't want to be like I was born with this like writing whatever. But like I, I do think a lot of it is just like I don't know what else I would do. I can't do anything else. This is my this is my skill. Well, good thing you're doing it. <laughs> and you're making cash money. <laughs> that is true. And and uh, yeah, and I think like I, I just don't know. Like if someone's like, what would you do if you weren't a writer? I don't know. Like that's that's the thing I've always done since I was a little kid. Like I just always had stories and ideas and imagination and this and that. Like that's it. But I also think you can you can nurture that stuff too. You have to push yourself. You have to nurture. You have to use it. You have to um, – like there's writing journals that give you prompts. There's things that can help you come up with ideas. There's like outlining. There's all these sort of things that can like, you know, like Allison said, giving yourself a word goal. There's like all these things that can push you. Like you can have, I have like the unharnessed, whatever it is, but I had to work to harness it. Mm-hmm. But I had to also divorce myself from the idea that writing has to be monetized. Mm-hmm. That like, it's something that I have to do. So it, because it has to be sold. And it has to be monetized and it has to become something other than just like a beautiful exercise in like, you know, it helps me sometimes make sense of ide- of, of things that have happened to me. That's great. I only yeah. like to monetize my writing. I know you do. We're, fa- <laughs> we're kind of very different types of writers. Um, I guess so. Yeah. That's why we don't that. write well together. <laughs> I know. We're very, very different in terms of how we write. Yeah. Tamika, want to come on in and share your thoughts? Yeah, I had a question for for you guys. I was kind of brainstorming and thinking through this concept that like, you know, it's so difficult to come up with new ideas or just ideas for stories. Um, What do you think about like leaning into being a good observer, like of people, of behavior, of the way things are going in our culture? Like if people develop that skill set to be a good observer, that it might help them come up with more ideas. Absolutely. Yes, totally. Observing what's happening in the world and what people care about. Absolutely. I mean, I'm so fascinated by the way people interact with each other. Any sort of like bizarre family dynamic you have, any weird interactions you see between your friends, all of that is fodder for something more. And it's the core of what we, we all write about it. We write about human existence. So observing human existence is just going to give you material. Yeah. I mean, I think like also when you, you know, when you were talking about what you were working on about like someone like Ivanka, um, I think I think that's a thing where you noticed something in the news. You noticed something that people was that was in the zeitgeist that people were talking about. And then you were able to harness that like I think you know reading the reading the room of like what is going on in society is very important to writing because it helps you express and fill a gap and like be able to get at the heart of what people are interested in and and then you know what you're interested in about that does that make sense yeah what did we what did we think of this episode overall Theo was incredible I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to have him as a guest I think his show is so important and it's just like we need those resources to be able to to be able to not call the police for everything. Mm-hmm. What do we rate the episode? Um, I rate it um, seven out of seven second wave feminists. Mm. <laughs> you love second wave feminists that much? Do I? <laughs> no, they're just a rating system. They mean nothing to me. <laughs> I'll rate it Six out of five scripts about Gabby. Oh, Both cute. written by me and written by you. <laughs> yeah, totally. Tamika? 
I was going to rate it 10 out of 10 writer's notebooks because oh. I feel like it's a good little thing to keep around if you want to be a writer just to jot down some notes every now and again so you don't forget your ideas. Absolutely. I talk into my phone. Oh. And I talk into my phone sometimes when I'm half asleep and then I listen back and I'm like, that wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, can I read? I want to read a couple listener reviews. Is that okay? Sure. This is from E Smith seventeen seventeen. Amazing podcast, five stars. They keep me coming back every week. I've been a fan since twenty fifteen. Oh, good lord, time has flown. They are not only engaging and interesting, but give detailed, helpful, and thoughtful advice, and are on the progressive side at every turn. Smiley face. Cute. Aww. So please leave a review, uh, rate five stars. We're coming up on that scary time where they may or may not renew us, so we could really use your support. Um, and thank you so much to Theo Henderson for being our guest. Just Between Us is hosted by me, Allison Raskin. And me, Gabby Dunn. Our engineer is Brendan Burns. He also composed our killer theme music. Our producer is Tamika Weatherspoon. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. Just Between Us is a production of Stitcher. Please go check out Theo's Patreon and Venmo and listen to We the Unhoused podcast. It's so good. Stitcher.